Well, uh, it was only two years ago, but do you remember before the COVID pandemic when you could actually travel wherever you wanted? Do you remember? Uh, when you could decide which borders you were going to cross and what shops you could enter and what you could buy in those shops? Do you remember when it felt safe shaking hands and hugging and sitting next to someone on a crowded train? Uh, when you had a fair degree of control over your health? Life wasn't easy, of course, but for most of us it was manageable, more manageable than at the moment. But lots changed in two years. Uh, not just COVID, but tsunamis and droughts and floods and bushfires. And death is literally front page news, isn't it? It's there, the number of people who've died in the last 24 hours. Uh, we've been forced to admit that we are not in control of ourselves or our world. Far from it. Of course, we never really were in control of our world, but I think it's much more obvious now. And I think it has shaken people, unsettled people, not being in control. And so the, many and so the question many people are asking is, if I'm not in control, who is? Where, where can I turn for help? Where can I turn for refuge and shelter? And Psalm 2 answers those questions for us. Psalm 2 tells us that God is in control. He always has, he always will be. The rulers of this world think that they are. The rulers, those with assets and power and influence, the decision makers, they plot and plan as if they're in control. But the reality is God just laughs at their feeble plans. God has plans centred on his king. His king is someone that we need to know. His king is the one we turn to to find refuge. Now that's the point of the psalm. So I've given you the heads up. You should know where we're headed. So I hope you've got the psalm in front of you. The first section, uh, pointless plotting. I, I tried to keep the alliteration going. I, I got my, my first two, two points where we had some alliteration, but I sort of couldn't work it out at the end. But anyway, pointless plotting is our first section, verses 1 to 3. Those with power make plans, but they're pointless. Look at verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. It's describing ancient Middle Eastern politics, international relations. But the same sort of thing is still going on today. The nations in that time, they, they think they're fighting an earthly king of an earthly kingdom. But the problem is this particular king has God on his side. This king is God's representative. He's been appointed or anointed by God with all of God's authority. Now, the Hebrew word for that phrase, anointed one, is Messiah, which you've probably heard before, or Christ in Greek. Uh, and it's shorthand, it's a title, a shorthand title for God's chosen king. And I guess where it came from was when a king was crowned, uh, he was anointed with oil by the priest. Uh, oil as a sign of God's pouring out of his Holy Spirit, filling that person for a special purpose. Uh, the physical symbol of oil was a sign of something spiritual that was happening, that God's spirit was filling that person for the job. And so, in a sense, every Israelite king was a Messiah, an anointed one. 
but none of them could measure up with this psalm, with the description of this Messiah or Anointed One. Psalm 2, it's prophecy, it's promise, it's looking forward to the Messiah, to the one who will fully match the promises and the description uh, we've got here in Psalm 2. Now, of course, it's Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the one this psalm is pointing to uh, five, six hundred years before Jesus comes. Jesus, the one who is the Messiah, the anointed one, anointed with God's spirit in a much fuller way than anybody else. And it didn't take the first Christians very long to make the connection between Psalm 2 and Jesus. We didn't read this one, but in Acts chapter 4, it's maybe a few months after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they've got in trouble. They've been in the temple preaching about Jesus' resurrection. They're arrested. They appear before the Jewish Sanhedrin and then they're released. And they return to where the other believers are meeting in in a room and all the believers gather together and they pray. And during the prayer, they quote Psalm 2. And it's really interesting. Have a look at uh, at what they pray. Acts 4, 24. They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, and then they quote Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So they're quoting the psalm and then look at how they put it into into history. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, whom you messiahed. So they've connected Psalm 2 with Jesus, God's anointed one, his messiah, and they're also connecting the, the murderous schemes, these rebellious schemes of the kings with the plots of Herod and Pilate when they plot to kill Jesus. So so just keep that in the back of your mind as we read through this psalm that this stuff is is promising and pointing to Jesus. Well, uh, the kings of uh, of the time of Psalm 2, they've got this similar intention to Herod and Pilate. Look at verse 3. They're plotting rebellion. Verse 3. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. Uh, These other kings, they want independence. They want autonomy. We know better than him. We want to rule instead of God. Forget God. Forget God's king. We want to run life our own way. Now, at one level, uh, it's describing the nations rebelling politically against Israel. But at another level, it describes each of our rebellion against God and his son Jesus. Each of us think that we deserve to rule our own lives. Each of us think that we control our lives, our health, our travel, our plans, our futures. Each of us think that we deserve to make decisions and not God. It's the age-old problem of human pride and independence. It's been around ever since Adam and Eve. It's human nature. Pride is the attitude which is behind every other sin. The sin of pride is underneath 
every other action or thought or sin. In fact, even good people who make their moral choices independently of God are guilty of that sin of independence as well, that pride, and God will hold them accountable for it. So what does God think of their rebellion? It is a powerful alliance. Uh, Perhaps God will have to think twice, kings and rulers, but no, it's no threat to God. What does God do? Verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He's not worried by people plotting. No, he's the eternal, powerful creator of millions of galaxies. And he looks down at this tiny collection of arrogant specks and he chuckles. That's how much of a threat God thinks their plans are. It's an ineffective act, but it doesn't mean it's insignificant. God doesn't ignore their act. He may chuckle, but he doesn't ignore it. It actually makes him furious. Mutiny, rebellion, is the ultimate mistake to make against God. They need to learn that they they don't mess with God. And so verse 5, he rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath. Now, we don't know exactly what that looked like for the the original setting of this psalm, but that's the fate that is coming for every person in our world who ignores God and chooses their own way. Immoral people, good people, are all people who ignore God. Destruction is coming. One day, judgment will come against those who will have to give an account for their attitudes. So God is angry. We're expecting something in the next verse, some uh, lightning bolt perhaps, uh, a plague, a natural disaster. What action will flow from his rebuke and wrath? But he's got something unexpected planned. And at first sight, it's not so awesome at all. He terrifies them in his wrath, saying, look, verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's a king. God's agent for his wrath is a human representative. Now, at first glance, it doesn't appear too fearsome. He's been installed on Mount Zion. Now, that's the hill that Jerusalem is built on. You know, Mount is, you know, that's stretching. It's overreaching, I think, really. I've been there. It's not much of a mountain. It's a bit more like Mount Druitt, really, I don't even know where... There is no mountain at Mount Druitt. It's like Summer Hill. Does anyone know where Summer Hill is? Uh, Where's the hill? But where's the hill? I don't know. That's what Mount Zion is like. It's not that impressive. Jerusalem itself is hardly a great city compared to Babylon or Persia or Egypt. Israel is hardly the sort of nation to trouble a decent-sized army, certainly not a combined army. And yet this is God's chosen instrument, his anointed king, the one to execute wrath and anger. Where is the the fear in that? Well, the crucial fact is that he's God's appointment. God stands behind him. It's like the ambassador of a foreign country. The Chinese or the American ambassador to Australia are probably not that imposing. But it's who they represent that gives them their authority. It's who they represent that means the Australian government will listen to them when they speak. Now, it's the same with God and his king. This king is God's representative, and so he's to be reckoned with. 
Well, verse 6 introduces God's king, and then uh, verse 7, the king himself speaks. Verses 7 to 9, the, the king, on the day of his uh, coronation, on the day of his crowning, he stands up and he, he gives a speech. He, he recites the conditions of his new job contract, what his job description is like, if you like. Uh, and the first thing that uh, God guarantees him is sonship. Look at verse 7. He, God, said to me, uh, the king, you are my son, today I have become your father. As he's crowned as king, as the, the, the crown goes on his head, God declares, you are my son and now I'm your father. Now we might think of Jesus straight away and his baptism, but, but that language is actually uh, standard language for describing God's relationship to an earthly king, to a, to a human uh, for example, God says the same thing to Solomon uh, in 2 Samuel 7 where Solomon uh, says that he wants to build a temple for God and here's what God says. Solomon is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish, establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. So God is saying when, uh, his, that his relationship with his king will be as close as father and son. Now, of course, uh, those of us who know anything about uh, Jesus and his life in the Gospels, we can see how it connects far more accurately to Jesus. Jesus is God's son, not, not by title, not by appointment. He's God's son by nature from all eternity. He's always been God's son. Uh, that was revealed to us uh, at his baptism Perhaps you remember the story. Jesus comes up out of the water and uh, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. Was it a dove? Was it like a dove? We don't really know. We're told it was like a dove, but the Spirit descends on him. This is anointing in a way that's far more rich and real than a priest pouring oil on his head. He, he's anointed and a voice from heaven says, You are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. God's Messiah uh, is also his son. But not just uh, anointed, not just baptised, uh, a son who is crowned as king. When did Jesus' coronation happen? Well, here's my, here's my uh, suggestion. Matt read for us Acts 13. Uh, Paul is preaching to the Jews uh, in, uh, in Antioch and he's talking about how Jesus is descended from King David then how he, he, uh, he's put to death and placed in a tomb. Uh, but then listen to how he, he uses Psalm 2. Uh, we're reading from Acts 13, verse 30. God raised Jesus from the dead. For many days he was seen by those who travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They're now witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. Now listen to this. What God promised our fathers... He's fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it's written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. So what does Paul connect Psalm 2 with? The resurrection of Jesus. Specifically, when God says to his son, or says to the king, you are my son, today I have become your father. 
So it's at Jesus' resurrection where he is crowned by God as the king. He promises it in Psalm 2 and then he keeps his promise hundreds of years later when he raises Jesus from the dead. Jesus is king. That's Paul's message all the way through Acts. His focus is on Jesus as uh, the one who's been resurrected. Uh, Jesus the king, not just of Jerusalem or Judea or Israel, but king of the whole world. King over life and death, over sin and judgment. Because he's beaten them, he's been raised from the dead. Right, so back to Psalm 2. God's king has been crowned, he's been declared uh, God's son. Uh, And then we see something of the dominion that God gives his son, this new king. So look there in verse 8. Here's what God has promised him. Ask of me, says God, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. God's Messiah is given every nation to rule. It's God's right to give him those nations because God made the nations. He's not just the God of Israel, he's the God of the whole world. And so his king has the right to rule the whole earth. Given as an inheritance, it's a funny kind of inheritance though. Normally an inheritance is something that you receive. But notice uh, the responsibility that uh, is part of this inheritance. Verse 9, you will rule them with an iron scepter, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. The iron scepter is about strong government. Dashing like pottery is a violent image of judgment. Uh, It doesn't sound much like a nice inheritance, does it? But I think it's a little bit like when you inherit the family business. Uh, You don't just get the privileges and all the good things, there are actually responsibilities that come with the inheritance. You have to find money to pay the staff, you have to satisfy customers. Now in this case, part of the inheritance, part of the responsibilities, is he is given the right to execute justice. These rebellious kings are to be smashed. He's given that responsibility by God. Now you might think that sounds pretty horrible, but just imagine the Jews in exile in Babylon in maybe 500 BC as they pray, as they sing these words, these words of promise and prophecy that one day God will raise a king who will smash the rebellious kings. They sing these words in faith and hope as they're locked up in exile and long for God to restore them. At the present, it seemed like the nations were smashing them rather than the other way around, but they were still able to pray and sing in faith and hope. And I guess that's a similar similar position for us. We've seen Jesus raised from the dead. We see him, uh, we trust him that he's ruling in heaven, but our world still bears the scars, doesn't it, of injustice and pain and suffering. Uh, But we sing songs like this, in faith and hope, just like God's people of old did. Because one day Jesus will return and he will smash rebellious kings, rebellious people like pottery. He will restore all injustice. But there's more. Notice how the psalm finishes. We've got this description, this promise of God's uh, king's reign. Uh, But with 
that warning comes a gracious invitation. God has the right to destroy his creatures, but at the same time, there's a gracious invitation. Verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The lesson to be learned is that rebellious people have to stop. They, they need to turn around and repent. Wisdom is not found in scheming and trying to defeat God, even if it looks like you're winning at the moment. Wisdom is found in recognising that God has the right to rule. Serve the Lord with fear, the psalmist encourages. Rejoice with trembling, which sounds a bit contradictory, doesn't it? God rules nations and weather and pandemics. God rules sin and death and judgment. So serve him with fear. Rejoice with trembling. We've been designed for it. Uh, that is the, the key to human flourishing, the key to finding shelter. Uh, the submission is there, and we, we tend to buck up against submission, but the promise that is that with submission comes joy. Rejoice with trembling. Uh, the true relationship of creatures is to submit to our Creator. Uh, that's where true living and true joy can be found. But not just to God. Uh, it's not enough just to say, I, God and I are buddies. Uh, it means swearing allegiance to God's King as well. Have a look at verse 12. We're not just serving the Lord with fear, we're to kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Recognise Jesus as the rightful king, the king over nations, the king over sin and death, and most importantly, sin over you. And the psalmist encourages us to take refuge in him. Refuge from his wrath and judgment. Flee to him rather than away from him. Refuge is found in fleeing to him rather than away from him. Blessing is found in fleeing to him rather than away from him. Now that application to, to, to recognise and swear your allegiance to King Jesus, that's, that's the same one that the early Christians worked out as well. Psalm 2 gives us that application. Acts 4, that we read earlier, encourages us uh, to also recognise Jesus. Have a look at it. Uh, they they recognise that the Romans and the Jews rebel against Jesus, but their prayer continues, and they don't pray that God would, would murder or punish the, the, the rebels. Notice what they pray. Now, Lord God, consider their threats against Jesus and punish them? No. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They're threatening us. Don't smash them. Help us to be bold. Stretch out your hand and heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Presumably the persecution would still happen, and it did. But they spoke the word of God boldly. They spoke the message that Jesus 
was king, that no one else deserved it. That was a message that they wanted everyone to hear and to recognise. Recognise the king, Acts 4, application. Acts 13, same application as well. Paul, in his speech at Antioch, uh, he identifies that God has raised Jesus and crowned him as king. But then look at his application, Acts 13, 37. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, here's the application, therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Your refuge is in Jesus. The way to escape the wrath of his son, uh, of God's son, is to come to Jesus. Not to flee him, but to come to him, to find your refuge in him, to find forgiveness for, for, for your rebellion. Rejoice, because he is the source of refuge. Refuge from fear in this world and uncertainty. Refuge from the things that we can't control, but God can. Refuge from his judgment. Now Jesus calls us to proclaim that same message, that message of refuge to the world, uh, to the nations who are God's, uh, to, uh, who are Jesus' inheritance. Just one last passage. We've flipped a bit, but I've got it up here on the screen for you. Matthew 28, it, it's a well-known passage where the Great Commission, we call it, where, where Jesus commands and sends out his disciples to, to baptise and to teach. But we often overlook that before that command, Jesus gives a promise. A promise that God has appointed his son as king over the world and given him the nations as, in, as his inheritance. Could he be thinking of Psalm 2 when he, when he says these words? Now Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God has made the nations his inheritance. Therefore, because I've got all authority, go and make disciples of all nations baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. This is the King who commands us, but he equips us and accompanies us. The King who commands us, equips us and accompanies us. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Don't flee, Jesus. Flee to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we've jumped around a lot tonight. Uh, we pray for your spirit to be poured out on us uh, as you poured it out on your messiahs, as you poured it out on those disciples to speak the word boldly, Pour your spirit out on us that we might understand more of your son, that we might see him, flee to him, that we might find refuge in him and that we might proclaim him to a world who needs refuge and rest and peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.